there, and welcome to the Craftish Podcast. I am Vicki Howell. So I was thinking the other day about one of the amazing things about social media. It's really just sort of revolutionize how we all stay in touch with friends and by reverberation their friends last year one of my kind of childhood best buddies steve nishida posted a link on facebook to an episode of a pbs show called tavis smiley so one of the guests of that show he said was a former classmate of ours at west high school in in torrance california and the last name of the guy sounded familiar, but I just couldn't quite place the first name. So I clicked on the interview and immediately recognized the face. The 20 something years that passed since I saw him had not much affected his face. Like seriously, he hasn't aged, but had changed his name as well as built up an extraordinary career rooted in words. I was thrilled when Sheehan Van Cleef agreed to be a guest on this episode of the podcast, not only because it offered an excuse to catch up, but also because we've never had a poet on the show before, which meant the opportunity to gain knowledge from a creative type who's walking yet another path of craft. We talked about community, the hustle of being an artist, and how being raised by a single father, writing to earn books as a child, and splitting his coming-of-age time between the multicultural Lower East Side of the late 80s New York and the predominantly white beach suburb of Los Angeles in the early 90s, created a successful wordsmith. Sheehan is the co-founder of the Poetry Lounge in Los Angeles, the largest weekly open mic night in America, and the first and only poet to have a poem named Download of the Week on iTunes. He's toured the world performing spoken word both solo and with Russell Simmons International Deaf Poetry Jam Tour, and has written campaigns for major brands like Nike and Adidas. I didn't know Sheehan well when we were teenagers, but I'm so happy to know him a bit better now. You'll have to indulge us a bit while we spend a little time reminiscing, but I promise we spend the majority of it talking about the art and craft of a life of spoken word. Oh, and speaking of words, there are a few adult ones dropped in the course of our conversation. So if you've got little ones, you might want to save this one for when they're in the other room. Let's meet Sheehan now. Sheehan Van Cleef, it is so great to have you here on Craftish. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I, for, first of all, it's amazing to be back in touch with you after 20, 20-something years of not, of not seeing you. I was so <laughs> thrilled. Um, you know, when our mutual friend Steve Nishida posted a, an interview that you'd done with Tavis Smiley on PBS, and it was just one of those things where you see somebody's face and you hadn't, you know, you hadn't thought about a lot of high school friends since you left high oh, school. Sure. And then all of a sudden, all of this, like, all of these memories come back. And honestly, just a pride. Like, there's so many interesting people that we were fortunate enough to go to school with. And um, I know. I'm just, I'm blown away by what you've done. And I just, it's such a pleasure um, getting to witness it now. Well, thank you. So, well, I'm glad I'm able to be here. I read, I read in, um, or actually, no, I was watching part of a workshop that you did in Nigeria. It was a spoken word workshop. Uh-huh. And in it, you said that it's really important for writers to find varying ways to tell their stories because not everyone will be interested in hearing it in the same way. And I was wondering if we could start with you talking about how, if at all, your own background, um, which... You know, you're a biracial guy that grew up in, in you know, a beach suburb in California, mostly white. You were raised by 
a former Marine, you know, full on, um, karate champion. You, if, <laughs> if you, if I remember correctly, cheering on the sidelines, you were, you, uh, were a football player, but, yeah. uh, but presumably, <laughs> presumably at the same time, you're also voraciously reading, um, writing poetry and that type of thing. And I'm wondering if that was sort of the genesis of where you yourself learned how to develop those different stories to tell, to tell people because you had your feet sort of in all of it's, these different worlds and cultures all at the same time. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's kind of a weird thing when I think about it. So, you know, I moved to California my junior year of high school and um, it was, yeah, it was just, I was raised by my father originally. So, and my father was also an ex-Marine, but was the martial artist and he used to train secret service at the world trade center in New York. And so I grew up around a whole group of people, a lot of different people from different areas, different cultures. And so when I moved to California, uh, especially to Torrance, when I moved to Torrance, um, and moved in with my mother, first of all, it was a weird culture shock because of the difference in cities. But then it was also a shock for me moving in with my mother, who I had not been around since I was five, almost six years old. Oh, wow. So it was like a getting used to her as well as getting used to a new environment. So there were a lot of things emotionally that were going on in my head. So writing was definitely one of the ways I was able to get that out. Um, I was also a lot more reserved, uh, which is something I got from my father about when I first and put in a new setting of being very aware of my surroundings first before I just kind of like, blah, 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 I'm here. And so I was very quiet for a lot of my high school uh, experience, even back in New York, just because I, I think to a certain degree, wasn't, even though I was on the football team at West, for the most part, I was not ever really like the cool, I was not really part of the cool crew. So I always just, you know, I, I went with the flow of the way things ran. And I think reading, writing, I used to, you know, being near a beach was like, oh shit moment for me. So yeah. I used to jump on, what is the five or the nine down to Redondo Beach? And that was kind of my every day, you know? So if I was playing sports, uh, I, you know, played on the team for football. I actually quit the basketball team because one of my friends didn't make the team. So I quit the team. It was just a weird high school experience but i think writing and and the friends that i had definitely helped me through what that was and that transition period in general so did it help to find your voice yeah, at all and, and did you oh, find it you sure. know, i i guess where i'm where i'm getting with this is is you at already at such a young age had already dabbled in all of these sort of different lives and i'm wondering if you had to put a different voice or a different self out there to your New York friends or maybe your football friends than you do than you did to, you know, your other friends. Did you have other friends that were into poetry at the time? At the time, not really, especially out here. Even back east, my, my friends, for the most part, were into like comics. <laughs> so even here, when I moved to Tarth, I used to collect comics. Uh, that I wasn't weird about, didn't feel weird about. But I think one thing that was a surprise is because, like I said, my father, uh, uh, trained the, the Secret Service as well as the police department, I was around a lot of different people. When I moved to Torrance initially, it was weird being like one of like three or four like black kids in the school. Yeah. And I think that was a weird thing 
for me initially. It wasn't didn't make me feel like uh, I, I wasn't accepted, but I was definitely aware of the fact that I was I was one of a few. And then even within those four or five, there was even fracture within that. So I think I, I started to become more. You mean culturally cu- or just culture, culturally? Because I think there is a big difference in growing. I think for anybody, there's a big difference between growing up in New York than growing up in California. Yeah. And I think weather has such a big uh it's such a big part of that because I think the weather here allows you to relax in a different way that back East, when you have to deal with the elements, it creates a different kind of hardening that LA, especially Torrance doesn't really provide. Um, and then also upper middle class, uh, um, was something different because even in New York, it was, a mo- it was so many different, uh, economic backgrounds that live together in the same kind of area. So you can live in a shitty neighborhood like I live in the Lower East Side, which now has become this Now that's bohemian. a great place to have real estate. It's like an amazing place to be. <laughs> and like, yay, it's great. And you know, when I first moved here, I uh yeah, it wasn't uh, it wasn't the place to be as far as how people looked at it then. But there were so many different people from different areas that lived there. So there were white people, black people, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, uh, Haitians, whatever it was. And I was just used to that. Here, it was just such an obvious like, oh, this is majority. Like, I'm a new guy. I'm the new guy. And it's like the new flavor and the new like trying to figure out. And I think I came into my own a lot more at that point where I started feeling more comfortable. Interesting. So it had sort of the opposite reaction that it would have for a lot of kids. Because you know, it's, you know, it's funny, like, obviously, I wasn't one of four of anything. But still, as I think part of what you're talking about is kind of a universal just teenager experience of feeling different and alone. I always felt like the weird freckly kid in a in a sea of blonde tan girls, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which obviously is nothing compared to, you know, feeling like you're completely, you know, different than everyone else, the other three people um, who share your race. But as a teenager, there's so, I think it's sort of almost inherent for the experience at its very root level right? to no, feel isolated. Yeah. And I think, like I said, I was lucky uh, the people, the first group of friends that I met when I first, first moved, because I moved over the summer, like basically after my sophomore year ended, I moved to Torrance with my mother and she told me what was around and I just kind of ventured out. And the first people I met were at uh, a park right off of Anza Avenue. There was like a little school there. Um, and Paradise Park. Was, yeah. And it, yep. so it was a kid uh, named Chris Mullen who was a white kid and Georgie Sue, whose parents own Moose Restaurant, which is right on uh, Torrance Boulevard. And uh, so those were the first two people I hung out with, white kid and a, a Thai Chinese kid. And then I met some of the others. I met Greg, who was black kid. And then when I moved, I actually started school. Then it was like, oh, then I met, you know, like Steve and uh, 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 Steve Sarkeesian and that little crew of the sports uh you know, everyone who played some kind of sport at that mm-hmm. time. Um, so, yeah. So, at that point, did you feel like the sport was sort of the common bond? I think, was, I think that winded up being the common bond initially. Um, and I think, like, over time, because I, I am a very, uh, very friendly, very uh, 
sociable and uh, loyal person. I think, you know, the the being the new person, I think gradually started becoming easier for other people also to be accepting of. And I think one of the weird things for me, which is so crazy because I was talking to my wife about this, I think one of the weird things for me was my senior year. <laughs> First of all, I was younger than everybody. I, I should put that out there. So I graduated at 16. So everybody else in our class was older than I was. So I was also not just the newer guy, I was also like the younger of everybody. So I was 16 when I graduated from West. Wow. And, and my senior year, uh, I was asked to go to prom <laughs> by one of the children. His name was Sandy. Sandy. Sandy Song? Song? Yes. And <laughs> it's, so, it's, it's freaking crazy. So this feels weird. Even said this. I said no. And because I still hadn't fully grasped what that, because I didn't see there was a, there was like a hierarchy in that world. Like, being homecoming this and prom this and this. And so I felt weird. And so I didn't go to any of those dances. She was probably I, in the homecoming court. I would most, I would bet it she was. Yeah. Like if I thought about it. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, like I didn't go to any of those dances, any of those things at, in my two years at West. I just still kind of like, you know, was trying to figure that out. Even though I was coming into my own, I still felt like, I don't know if that was where I was yet. And I was part of that kind of culture yet so at what point are you feeding yourself creatively did you start writing poetry you know as soon as you could write or were Um, you playing music or were you was there some way that you were sort of infusing this into your life I think initially the arts for me were all martial arts I think I still look at martial arts as an actual art Uh, I think that's why the words in there as well I think it's movement and uh, an expression through my movement but I think I started writing pretty early um, just because I like to read and I used to, you know, be a part of Scholastic Book Club and grew up where I couldn't afford some of the books. So I used to enter contests to win the books. And that kind of was where things stood as far as that was concerned. But then. And the first contest that you won was, was, was with was a poem, poetry. right? How old were you then? Oh, God. Uh, eight, my guess. Eight or nine. Yeah, it has to be. It was second grade. So. Seven, where eight. where does that even come from within you? I mean, where I mean, if it's it's you and your dad, right? Um, is he dad, was he a poet? Also, was he is he writes. creative? My dad is a writer. Yes, he was great, and he used to draw. So I okay. used to love drawing. Um, I still like drawing. My son draws, but he and my dad was very uh, motivating. He was very inspiring. Uh, also, because I grew up in a time where you know. I've said this a lot, like I was lucky to be raised by my father during the time that I was raised by him. Because I think the example, as a matter of fact, all the kids that were black at the school at West were all raised by their moms. Yeah. Yeah. And Single so, moms, right? Yeah. So yeah. I was raised by my father. So it was a different thing. And he was very encouraging. He wanted me to do things. If I said I was, when I, I used to draw my own comic books, he used to push me in that and like, do what you want, do how, and always about how I felt. He wanted me to feel good about what I was doing, but also challenge myself to go further. And so that kind of led to the writing. I think uh, in West, I was still writing. It was still very much something that I kept to myself and very, very few people. I think like maybe two or three of the kids I hung out with knew that I was writing or that I wrote. And So you weren't a part of any kind of club or you weren't channeling it through... Theater no, classes or anything like that. No, 
not at all. It was all just something I did. Uh, actually, through school in New York, the Boys Club of New York is kind of like a big part of the culture there. Uh, I went away to writing, creative writing uh, camps uh, through scholarship, through Boys Club. So I went away to school to learn the craft more, but it it wasn't something that, uh, yeah, there, there weren't others like in school-wise that I was able to do. It was all stuff outside of school uh, that I was able to express myself and learn more about the craft in that way. You mentioned uh, martial arts being creative. What about it for you is creative? Um, move, the movement, because I am not, my, my art in, in writing really is stationary. It's a very stationary art. You know, the, uh, uh, the, the joy of it and the love for doing it takes place in one space. Mm-hmm. Wherever that space may be, it's here. Like it's at a desk, it's on my bed. Or within uh, your own head. In my own head. Yeah. With martial arts, I can express how I feel through movement. There's sa- a different kind of sound that is, you know, with key eyes. And there's a lot more, uh, uh, it's a lot more physical. And I like that balance. Uh, I like being, because it's not something I get to do. Just like I have a sister who dances. Like seeing her do that, I'm amazed by that because I can't move like that. And I wish I was able to express myself more physically in a, a more physical way than mm-hmm. I am currently able to do. Even though when I perform, when I you perform, around. you move around a lot. Is yeah, there, a, is there any, <laughs> do you channel the martial arts side of it? I mean, I'm not to insinuate that you're doing no, any you, crazy, like high kicks, um, right. doing it, but, but is there a connection there between the physical art of, of whichever martial art you're talking about. Is it karate or was it something else? Yeah, it's karate. Okay. It was karate, yeah. Um, so the physical art of karate and the mental art of writing and the verbal art of spoken word, are there are there parallels with how they feed you creatively or is it kind of like synapses from different parts of your brain like fusing together and kind of exploding? I think that's what it is. It's okay. more of that. Yeah, it's definitely more of that. At what point, so... You're writing on your own, you're, you know, you've moved, you've, you know, sort of coming into your own, you go away to college. At what point do you start really sort of thinking like this poetry, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of my jam, like this, this might be the thing. <laughs> so uh, I think the randomness of the art world did that. So I always was writing and I, we, after graduating, uh, one of my friends uh, introduced me and introduced a couple of my friends to a music person, a music producer. And they were like, are you interested in writing and being part of this thing? And I said, of course, because I love to write. So was your major English in college? My, my major was English. I okay. wanted to be an English teacher okay. um, just because, and I actually do teach English, but um, not full time because that's a lot more of an involvement than I have time for as currently. But um yeah, it was, uh, I did, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how else to explain that. It was just a weird, the art world led me into it, and I wound up being at a studio, and there was a guy running around looking for somebody to write for Schoolhouse Rocks, which sounds so random and old, right? So my friend goes, oh, he writes, and he's like, oh, do you think you could write something for Schoolhouse Rocks? I thought Schoolhouse that stuff Rocks? was all produced in the 70s. There was so another wave of it? Stuff. Yeah, there was another wave oh. of it in the 90s. So I was like, of course. So 
So I wind up writing this thing for Schoolhouse Rocks. And after that, do you remember what it was? Yeah, it was for the Electoral College. I couldn't recite it. I just know it <laughs> was for the Too bad because I could, we could all use an education <laughs> on that right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I wrote that and then I was like, and then they gave me a check and I'm like, oh shit, I can get paid to write. Yeah. And then it just took another step up and I was introduced to Universal, uh, to MCA back when it was just MCA. And I got signed uh, basically to write music for Universal. For Wait, that was MCA. it? That was all you had to do to get signed? It was, well, that was also a way different time. Like I think. But uh, still we grew up in, you know, outside of LA where how many of our friends or people around us did we know that we're all trying to be actors? And it was really hard. It was really hard to get an agent and you were already washed up by 16. And so <laughs> that's pretty impressive. I mean, you say it's a different time, but I remember it being difficult for performers. No, it definitely was difficult. But I think one of the things, I think nepotism is really real in the mus- in different industries. And I think meeting some of the people I met and them introducing me to other people allowed for easier access than yeah. if I just went cold in like, hey, I'm a writer. What do you guys think? You know, I think being introduced the way I was allowed me access in a way yeah, that yeah, I yeah. And then yeah. once you once you get a paycheck, it's funny. Um, for another episode of this podcast, I interviewed um Sayida Garrett, who wrote "Man in the Mirror" okay. for Michael Jackson. Yeah. Um, and she said that you know it was sort of a similar thing. Hers was for Quincy Jones, though, where she sort of got this gig randomly. I mean, she worked for it hard for it, but then all of a sudden she you know gets a paycheck, and she's like, "What? I can <laughs> sing and get paid for it?" Like she was that was it. Like she. That was it. She was done. Yeah. And it sounds like a similar thing happened with yeah, you. Sure. Yeah, it was, a, it was a surprise. And I was like, oh, snap. And then I signed a deal with MCA and I was there for a while. And once that ended, MCA got sold uh, to a J- Seagram's and then a Japanese company sold. It. it was just like a whole bunch went on in that. That was kind of the starting of the turn of the music industry into what kind of what it is now and the condensing of it. And so... What does I that look of, like for those of us that are not in the music industry at all? What is it? What does it look like to be signed on as a writer? Do you get hired to write for other for artists for vocal artists? Do you? Yes, yeah, so I get brought in to okay. write for other artists, and and the way it was, and still some deals deal with this now, especially publishing deals. You can get a publishing deal, and basically, you're required to write ten songs a year or twelve songs a year. Um, they have to be placed. Um, which means they have to be put on somebody's project, and you basically get paid to do that. And the reality is, at that age, 12 songs a year was nothing in my right. head. I'm sitting there going, right. 12 in a year? Because you didn't year? have to worry about kids, picking up kids from school or paying <laughs> the mortgage. <laughs> at all, yeah. nothing at all. Like, I'm literally just hanging out at Delamo <laughs> or the Galleria and then writing and then going to the studio. Like nothing at all. Taking the bus, and that was, was crazy too, because even though I was here for so long, I still didn't get a car until I was 22. So even I with your like awesome even job? With even with my deal, I took Why a bus that? everywhere. I think I was so used to New York and having to take the train mm. or the bus places that it seemed like, why not take that? But then after a while, I'm like, this shit, they take forever to come, especially when you move out of Torrance, because Torrance has a way more uh, consistently ran system because it's its own, you know, it's Torrance Transit. Right. You move into LA and it's the RTD, right. all of a sudden like, it's two hours till the next bus. Yeah. I don't want to deal you with this. You have to pack a lunch just to go across the city. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a different thing, yeah. 
So at that point, if you're bringing on to being brought onto a record company, I'm assuming it's not for their, you know, spoken word category. I'm assuming it's, what is it for hip hop? Is it for? For hip hop, but one of the random jobs and what I mean by then and how the industry kind of is a different machine than it is now is I was, my first uh, credit under MCA was writing for the NBA and for Reebok. That doesn't happen as often anymore where those sub... You mean you know, for, sub- for commercials, like for ads? Yeah, for commercials. Okay. I wrote commercials for Reebok, uh, did their launch for one of their lines, and I did stuff for the NBA. And I was sitting there like, this is so freaking crazy. And then I wrote for a group, and a hip-hop group. And when that, you know, when MCA was sold, I just was sitting in my house pissed off that I didn't have a deal anymore. <laughs> and uh, one of my friends who I call my brother, my brother comes to the house. He had just moved out to L.A. And he's like, I heard what happened. Uh, you know, I'll take you out. <laughs> and he took me out. He said he wanted to take me to a club. And I was never a club person, but I wanted to get out the house. So we go out to this club and we wait in line. And we get to the front of the line. And the bouncer's like, oh, you can't come in with jeans and sneakers. <laughs> and I'm like, are you kidding and he goes, yeah, sorry, you can't. And my brother goes inside and leaves me. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? And he drove. I still didn't have my car. So mm-hmm. I looked across the street. Was that the moment number. where you were like, I got to get a car? <laughs> I, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and I look across the street and I see a freaking open mic. And I see a poet that I had read in an anthology reading. And I, I see really? this poet. I'm like, oh, shit, I just saw the knowledge. I was reading his book. And I walked across the street. It was like two bucks to get in. And I sat down and it was an open mic. And I just sat there and that became my every Thursday. I used to take the bus almost two hours up to Melrose to watch that open mic every Thursday. So a fashion choice kind of changed your life. Changed my life. (laughs) Yes. So we grew up in the exact, well, you you came later, but um, we, we spent time or went to high school in the same city where NWA recorded the iconic, like straight out of Compton. And I remember me even as like, you know, you know, like a short white girl, I was, that whole thing was really impactful for me, just sort of the reverence of it, the, you know, the risk taking the culture right then. And I was wondering if it, if it influenced you at all towards your spoken, like if it influenced the voice that you would then later have as you were writing and as you were, you know, founding these um, spoken word groups. Um, I don't know. I think... I was, I wasn't an NWA fan, but I was an Ice Cube fan. I, I and I appreciated his writing ability, and I thought he could rap his ass off. So, yeah, you know, I became an Ice Cube fan. I think towards the end of high school, when he was already solo, like when he was still in the group, I wasn't really a fan of the group. So, I think some of what he did, I was inspired by, but uh, I don't think it pushed me to write some of my poems. I think a lot of my poems were inspired by just the friends and people that I knew growing, growing up. Is there Um, any, um, are there parallels? Is there an intersection between rap and poetry? Oh, for sure. I think, uh, especially as it, the time passed earlier on, it was different because there were no, uh, contemporary examples of poets out there the same, the way hip hop is. But as time went on, all of a sudden there was, and a lot of those people kind of played around in the same circles. So my partner in one of the venues I run uh, called the Portrait Lounge, he went to school with the Black Eyed Peas before they were Black Eyed Peas when they were in high school. And so they love poetry. 
and they loved what we did. And then it kind of fit. It just happened. You know what I mean? And then most deaf. And there were people who were part of poetry scenes who were hip hoppers who I think started kind of hanging out a lot more and uh, being more involved with each other. Uh, but I think the weird intersection, for especially out here, comes with comedy and poets and poetry. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. The, the scene started, when I got into the scene, all of the open mics were poets and comics. Every single one. And that was back when you could catch Chris Rock at a poetry yeah. spot doing comedy. And it was just the norm, you know? And I think... The, the trajectory of the two art forms is totally different. Uh, so there is some intersectionality within it, but not uh, in their trajectory because I think comedy, you know, it's comedy and poetry is like, there's a whole lot that can go into poetry. So what are you getting? And Don't I you think, think it's just a, compl- a different, it's two sides of a coin, different ways to expose. Totally. Like emotion, especially. Cl- yeah. I mean, most comedians will voluntarily say that they had a rough childhood. And some of the best poets have experienced hardship and strife. The difference, the main difference is just sort of the expression and how how you mold that into your own self-expression. But it seems like there would be some commonality in the base experience, at least as a a community. For sure, because I think both communities initially, which is different than a lot of different art forms – is based in public uh, performance and public speaking. So you have to get very comfortable with being in front of an audience just staring at you, like just looking at what you do. If I'm a musician, I can record, and you can be lucky enough to record something, Say, especially now, because people have the luxury of YouTube and like the internet. When we started, there was none of that, which sounds like we're extremely old. But the reality is until... Like what, 2000, maybe a little after that, the internet still wasn't really doing anything. So you had all this time uh, where you had to make a name or create who you were by being in live spaces. And yeah. I think that creates the character. And the amount of vulnerability there, because, you know, if you're a musician and you play an instrument, you can hide behind your guitar a little bit or your keyboard. Um, and if you're a theater performer, you can hide a little bit behind that character or the costume. But if you're if you're performing in spoken word, often it's biographical, or at least there's something about you right. in it. So True. you're you're standing sort of, you know, you're standing there completely vulnerable in front of yeah. an audience, just just showing who you are. You know, it's funny, when I was um when I was 19, I worked on this. It was a teen-oriented traveling talk show. Um, You can imagine how well it did. (laughs) And um, one of the field packages we had to do was on the origins of rap. And so we went to the Watts Towers. And then after that, we went to this tiny club. Not even club. It was almost like it was a rec center. And every, it was like Tuesday night, they had open mic rap night. And what struck me about it, um, other than... Well, what struck me about it was how the presentation of the mostly boys, some girls got up, changed 
as they got up and got in front of their mic. Some of them, it would be like chin up, shoulders back. Some of them, it would be like, you know, like sag down a little bit and off to the side. But you could just see them physically transform as there's about to be that vulnerability. And they're not even necessarily bearing their soul. They're almost going into like a warrior mode. But I wonder if there's any parallel to that of you performing in spoken word when you are, in fact becoming vulnerable by telling the stories of, you know, how you became the Wolfgang Puck of Top Ramen, which, by the way, I loved that story, Um, (laughs) uh, as a starving, you know, college student. I wonder if there's any parallel to to that. And also, that that line, and this is from a poem um, that you just called the poem, I think, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, It was, it had a really, really long title. And I think you just made it called the poem where you talked about, you know, struggling in college and being a 100 grand in debt and wishing that you had a warranty for that kind of thing. Um, But then talking about how creative you got with Top Ramen. And I was wondering, this question has gotten way longer than I had planned, but two <laughs> things. Do you feel yourself change or persona change when you get on stage? And the other is, do you think that your experience as a you know starving student has helped or hindered in any way in that tra- transition from being a like hustling artist? Uh, well, first off, I think it helps. Um, I for sure think it helps. I think the idea that and the the reality of having to go through some kind of adversity or being entrenched in an uphill battle with a, some form of adversity allows once i get past it to to be more grounded in what it is i'm doing i'm also one who believes a lot in purpose and so i believe in purpose and i believe what i do i have a purpose to do what i do so i think there's a confidence that definitely uh uh, is carried with me onto stage when I get up because I know the story I'm telling is honest and truthful and I'm very passionate about it as well as knowing outside of telling it for me, for the people that I feel come with me on stage. I, I, I think I'm grateful. Obviously, some of the situations I had to go through, I hated going through them, but I'm so glad because I, I have a tougher skin in regards to how I take criticism of what it is I do as well as what the audience is, you know, non-verbally giving me on stage. Like I'm not one to walk off stage or or be scared away from stage because I don't feel comfortable. I think those kind of adversities allow you to become more comfortable in what it is you have to say, who it is you are, and what it is you're trying to get across. So I feel very comfortable. And I think that was something earlier on I used to read poems with my eyes closed. Mm. Uh, and people used to think it was like some deep like poetry shit. Like, oh, he has his eyes closed. <laughs> He's going in. And I was like, no, it's just I'm thinking about what it was I was going through. Or like, maybe no if I can't reason. see you, you can't see me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like in my head, I'm just like eyes closed. Focus on what it is you're trying to say. Yeah. That's it. Nothing mm. else matters. So, yeah. So, you know, art, especially... I guess especially painting and often music can kind of become a universal language. But when you, you've traveled the world and performed, how, how does spoken word become a universal language in the same way that painting or music? Well, when you're performing for an audience that maybe doesn't speak your actual language. Uh, that's a, a really, that's been interesting for me to watch. So my first performance I can think of that, I 
was in a space in a, uh, in, in, uh, in a theater where no, the majority of people spoke no English and they had to translate what it was I was saying onto the screen behind me was in Japan. I did a show in Tokyo and it was an audience of about 1,100 people, something like that. Wow. And I think it's the passion. And then they're reading it. So they see I'm passionate about whatever they're reading. And so there's a gravitation. I think people are gravitate towards people that seem passionate about what they do. You know, so what, like I, I'm getting ready to head back to the Netherlands in April. And there, I have the luxury there that they speak multiple languages. So they do kind of understand um, and they, they, they'll ask questions after. But I think there is a thing about passion that yeah. translates. I've seen people get up at the venue I run that don't speak any English. And I'm just like caught up in the of the moment. Like I'm just caught up in the moment of what they're doing. And then after I, you know, I try to talk to them and see if there's a way I can get you know, information on what the piece was in English so I know what they were saying outside of just the feeling that I was getting watching them. Yeah. But I think there is that. And I think... Are you touring? Are you? Do you book just like, a you know, any other speaker or comedian or performer? What do you book spoken word dates to different venues yeah, around the world? Yes, I do do that, but I do it a lot less than I used to. Um, now the majority of my dates are outside of the country. Uh, because I'm more interested in seeing other parts of the world than continuing to go right. to pe- to places here. Uh, even though I think telling stories here is still very much important and very much something I'm interested in doing. But also having a family now. I can't, like if I'm going to leave, I, I'd rather either be able to take them with me or go to somewhere I've never been so that I have a story to come back with. Right. You know, if I go to, do, go to New York for a few days, coming back going, I went to New York, like, they're like, how come you didn't take me? You, you're from there. Why is that special? Like, it doesn't mean right. as much as me coming back from New Zealand or, you know, from Dubai or from wherever and saying, hey, I was just in Malta doing poems. Like, let me tell you what goes on in Malta. Everything is the same color. Like, you know, it's like a different, it's a different thing. So I try not to travel as much. Um, and also I think I, because of where I'm at in my career, I have the luxury of being able to do that now in a way that I wasn't able to, obviously, when I started. Has know? the internet affected that at all? Like the fact that you can broadcast for people around the world at any point in time from in your pajamas from home? You know what? Yes, but I haven't fully taken advantage of that because I, 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 I like the interaction with people in a live setting. I, I enjoy that more than anything. I think, uh, yeah, I think it's a harder thing to get all of what an audience is giving through just screen, you know, like me getting to go to London. Like I just, I'm actually going to keep going back, but I was just in London and I, I'm at the university of London, uh, school of Oriental African studies. And there's 300 people there. Uh, that feeling, first of all, that 300 people just came to see me only. There's no other performer on the bill. Wow. But, and second that they stay for two and a half hours to listen to everything I have to say. At an internet, well, they could actually walk out if they wanted to. But on the internet, they can just click that off and walk away. Like, there's no, nothing that really keeps you there. And I do like the idea, even though it's not part of my uh, uh, motivation, I do like the idea that also being there physically 
makes them a little more uh, reluctant to walk out. <laughs> like, <laughs> you have them prisoner, so... I'm like, you're here. You might as well I, hear some uh, poems, people. So hear the rest of this set, you know? Yeah. Uh, on, online, they could just click off and it's done. Their experience is over. So when you put together a set, is it a set list of poems that have an overarching story, or are they completely unrelated or that's weird so i try and create an arc but i do not create set lists okay. so when i do a set there are roughly 40 give or take poems in my head uh that i go into a show with and depending that are memorized on, completely that are memorized, memorized okay that are completely memorized i go on with those and then if i have some new work that i'd like to read uh, i bring that with me as well but i go with emotion first <clears throat> i go with emotion over the idea that i have of what the audience will like because if i if i go with my idea of what the audience likes if they don't like it i'm kind of stuck with this set that is basically a waste of time do you so have I a transition like mid-set based on oh, the read of the room sure. okay. yeah for sure done that because i also run sets where i talk in between and take questions in between poems so it's not just listen to me for an hour and then i'm done it's I in between questions they could raise a hand, ask questions, make comments, and hey, can you do this poem or how, what made you write that or and it, that those kind of questions create a, a dialogue instead of it just being me monologuing up on stage. Yeah, and isn't that invaluable that exchanging oh, of sure. energy and ideas? For sure, for sure it is. You um, let's talk a little bit about when you were touring with Russell Simmons presents Deft Poetry International um, and. I just would love to know what it's like to tour with other people that are equally, presumably, equally as passionate as you are about the the art inside of their head. And and are you able, as a sort of troop, to feed off that creative energy? Or is there sort of a protective closing off at that point? Um, I think initially there was the feeding off of. I think as it went on, there was this protective idea. I, I think that happened. Um, it was great at first, initially, and I enjoyed doing it. I thought it was one of my favorite uh, experiences as a poet. But I do think when you have stuff like that, and you see it with groups, <laughs> right? So I don't think it's uh, uh, independent of or something that only poetry experiences. I think if you look at groups in general, there are very few groups and troops that kind of just last Right? They kind of work for a certain amount of time and then there are different uh, passions and ideas from the different people and that kind of splits the group up. And I think with the poetry, as far as a tour, you had that part of it where people had different ideas for what they felt poetry could be and could be viewed as that was uh, not what deaf poetry presented. You know, I think we you doing the same six poems a night 52 cities, 52 dates, you know, every two months or whatever, that that kills creativity because you're not inspired doing yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. How do you how do you stay, how do you keep those creative juices flowing at that point and don't feel like you're like sucking your soul away with each word? Well, I went through one of the worst fits of uh, of, 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 of writer's block oh. during that entire during that time because I'm sitting there going oh my God, this is so uninspiring to sit and hear the same 30 poems every freaking night. 
you know? And so it took, once the tour ended, it took time. It took like eight or nine months before I was even able to get into like a new, a rhythm again of getting out what I was feeling just because I was in a rut. And we were, you know, it was a, obviously we're flying internationally, but then in some of those places we were also on a bus. So, you know, a tour bus for the most part, except for the back room where it has the big bed, like the king bed, which, you know, was, we had the, the women in, the, in those and who wanted some of the other like bunks, but the bunks are like giant little coffins. Right. They're basically coffins, curtained off coffins. So I'm sitting in a thing that's three by three and by, you know, six and a half feet it long. It symbolizes the long. death of your creativity. And that's totally <laughs> what it was. I totally <laughs> felt like that. Yeah. And I would tell my friends, because I luckily had one of my best friends on the tour with me. We would talk about it all the time. And he's big. He's six something oh, and no. like 260. So he's like, this is the worst. So we would talk about that all the time. It's so uninspiring. So, you know, as grateful and as wonderful of an experience it was to travel around the world and have people here our stories, it also was, you know, uh, debilitating to a certain degree to our craft to not be able to create more while we were on that journey. Yeah. So, yeah. You've talked a bit about community and about the sort of exchanging of ideas, you know, with your, um, with your audience. Um, and I wonder how you transitioned that both the vulnerability and the hard work that goes into cultivating a community into crowdsourcing um, a major project for yourself in 2013. I think it was the deciphering gibberish project. Yes. We, we talk a little bit about, about that, how you, cause that's to me, that's a double vulnerability. Not only are you showing people something that you really want to make happen, but you're also asking them for money. Right. Well, it took forever for me to get comfortable with that. Just because as a, in general, as a person, I do not like asking people for help yeah. at all. Um, I'd rather, which winded up happening when I first lost the, when the deal ended with MCA, I was in my car. I hated the fact, like even asking, like if I could stay, can I chill here for a while until I get everything back on my feet? But like, I didn't even feel comfortable doing that. So to get to a point with the book, I think, so many years had passed uh, that I was in the in the scene. It was almost ten years that I was in the poetry scene by then. Um, that I felt like I had earned to a certain degree the right to ask for something in return. Because what I do for the most part is very outside of them supporting by being there in the audience. It's a very one sided thing because. By the time I finish performing, an audience knows so much more about me and my passions and what I love and what I don't like and blah, 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 than I will know about the audience. So putting up a project like that also let me know what the audience felt about what I did. So that was kind of what pushed me. To and you, over, you, went, you surpassed your, what you were asking for, your goal. So they must, yeah, must and have they felt did. good, rewarding. It, I mean, it felt great. It just initially I was like, oh, God. I'm really up for this. I don't know. Yeah. And this is a weird feeling. What too. did you learn about that experience? That there is more support for what I do than I'm willing to give myself credit for knowing. Yeah. You know, and I think that was the biggest lesson. How much of that community that, you know, that 
were a part of that campaign, do you think came from the physical community that you'd created through um, the Poetry Lounge? Uh, weirdly enough, about a quarter of that. More than half of the orders, uh, so the first print was like a thousand, more than half of the books were overseas. <clears throat> more, more than half. So uh, as far as in LA and California, it was a lot less, like I would really say about 25% of the, that, the supporters of that project went and were, from pe were people from the Poetry Lounge. You now, along with a partner, not now, you have for quite some time run the sort of largest spoken word open mic night yeah. nationally in LA. Yeah. How, talk a little bit about how that started and got to that level of success. Oh, shit. Um, weirdly enough, so when we got into the poetry scene, when I first got into the poetry scene... The was this post-jeans? Was this post-Oops, I Wore Jeans and now I'm at Spoken Word? This was that night. Okay. So this is how crazy that night was. So I go into the open mic. Uh, actually, it was the week after. So the week after that night, I go back and I get on the stage. I go off stage and the first person who says something to me is a poet named Dante Bosco, who's one of my friends, who's one of the founders as well of the Poetry Lounge. And he comes up, he goes, man, I really like what you did. Da, da, da. And we started talking. So I met him the week after that. That was in 94. I met Poetry, one of my best friends, that night as well. And But the open mic we were at was ran by someone who was 10 or more years older than us. But so, I mean, were you even 18 at that point? If you graduated, because no. we graduated in 92. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, no. Uh, no. I Yeah, so... I, yeah, it was crazy. It was super crazy. So anyway, all the open mics were all ran by old people, which at, as a teenager, old is like 30. You're like, these old ass people. Right. But there were people even older than that. There were open mics that were like 50, like 50 something years old that were being ran, right? So we always wanted a space where young people were. And there was always a disconnect like there is everywhere between the age gap. Like yeah. that's not real poetry because the kids are doing it. Yeah. Or that's not real hip hop or that's not real music or that's not, there's always that disconnect. So we started having, we started looking for spaces to have just our friends get together. And we winded up having the open mic in Dante's house and we were living together at the time. And I, it was, I mean, there was five, of, there were five of us in the house. So I had the living room, which was like a big living room. And I would move all my shit out on Tuesday nights. We would invite people over and we'd have open mics at the house. At a really? Certain, you opened your house? We Just opened our house. Whoever. Okay. So at a point, there were like 70, 80 people in the house. Which as a parent the, now, as a parent of teenagers now, <laughs> I have to just stop you for a second. <laughs> I mean, I know you have a 14 year old. Like, yeah. can you, can you imagine endorsing your, you know, say, oh, let's say two to four years from now, now like was open crazy. your house to strangers and perform. Can you imagine? I know, yeah, it would not work. <laughs> but then the difference was Dante and his brothers, he has uh, three brothers. They all lived together. So they had the house. So it was all young people in the house who, who rented this house. And we just invited people over. And all of a sudden, you know, there are people in other people's rooms. And we're like, okay, we have to find another space. And so we moved to another space. And while we were at that other space, there was a theater being built called the Greenway Court Theater on Fairfax and Melrose in Hollywood. And the people who were building that used to play basketball with one of the poets. 
and used to come to the lounge. Mm. So they're like, look, we're opening a theater. If you guys ever decide to move, we'd love to have you in our space. And the owner of the place we were in at that point was being an ass and we decided to move. And so we were getting a hundred and something people, 150 people a, a night at that space. So we moved to Greenway, which is a hundred seat theater, but then it was open. Besides that, it was open completely. So we could get 200 to 300 people in there on a Tuesday night. And I think the family vibe and the inviting of people into a space at like that was our home, I think spread and made people feel like there was a certain level of respect and uh, reverence that needed to be uh, given in a place like that. And so that carried with us. Those people came with us to the new space and into Greenwood Court Theater. And that family vibe was always there and has always been there. You know, we've I and I we I always had a rule myself to not date anybody in the lounge because I feel like messing around in workspaces can create a whole bunch of problems. Mm -hmm. But I winded up meeting my wife at the Borgia Lounge when she was on vacation visiting California. Oh, really? Is she, so, is she a poet as well? She's actually a social worker. When I met her, she was an MC, And she <laughs> was still a social worker as an MC, but she was an MC, and then she was doing her social work. And I was like, oh, shit, this is amazing. MC so, social, yes. Yeah, so... <laughs> My best friend, uh, Poetry, he met his wife at the lounge. Like, people met their wives at the lounge. My Matter of fact, my wife's brother met his wife at the lounge wow. when he first moved here. So it was so crazy. So you're and creating became, stories at this place, like oh, life stories. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And meeting people who, you know, years later now, this is 20 something years I've been in the scene, almost 20 years we've had the poetry now. Now I'm meeting people who were kids. Oh, wow. Of people who attended, who were like, we've heard stories about you, or <laughs> we get uh, people from other countries. We have people come from different countries, like uh, matter of fact, from Berlin a couple weeks ago. He's like, I've been watching you on TV since I was ten years old. I've been watching you on YouTube since I was in middle school. I've been watching this and that, and they come take pictures, do autographs, and it's so crazy. But you realize that the impact of a place and the stories carries, and they will carry. And how important that is. And I think people are always looking for a place to hear and share stories. And that's what makes the Poetry Lounge so powerful and important, especially in a city like L.A., which is so glitzy to have a place where people are giving and telling honest and genuine stories. Even though you do get people every now and then who get up there and like, bullshit, you know? Yeah. But we've, and the Poetry Lounge is like a secret in Hollywood. It's so large, but people still have no idea. And it's, that's what makes it really, there's a mystique that surrounds it. We've had, before he passed away, Prince had been to the lounge. My, uh, Janet Jackson had been to the lounge. Uh, Alan Burst. I mean, we've had so many people come to the lounge yeah. and be there and just want to experience it. Just sit there. Angela Bassett her, and Courtney Vance, and they used to bring their son all the time. Like uh, Rosario Dawson, she was one of the people who was part of it when we first started the lounge. So there are a lot of people who are part of the lounge and extended family. Matter of fact, one of the founding members, not one of the founders, his name is Omari Hardwick. There's a show on stars called Power. He's the star of that. So like the lounge kind of exists in a space beyond just the poetry lounge now, but is carried with it in those other spaces. There's a song, I Love You Like a Love Song that Selena Gomez did a while back. That was her biggest song she ever did. That was written by NQ, who's a poet and, and, by, and a hip hop poet, like white, Jewish hip-hop <laughs> poet. 
wrote that song. And I still have his voicemail when he called me and he's like, dude, I'm in the fucking studio. I don't know how I got trapped in this freaking pop world, but I'm here and I'm not leaving. I'm not going to leave. And I'm like, the Poetry Lounge is everywhere. TED Talks, the reason they even have poets at TED Talks is a poet named Reeves. Reeves is a Poetry Lounge poet. He won the national championship with us on the team. He got them to do that. He did a travel show with Bar Raffaella, um, a travel show with a poet. Like, yeah. so, the Poetry Lounge exists in so many different spaces now that it's, it shows like also the time and the people that were part of that initial family were outside of being close friends, were extremely talented because they winded up going to places no one thought poetry would exist in during that time. Yeah. Wow. It was kind of like a, almost just like a, like a breeding ground for creativity. Oh, for uh, sure. It sounds like. And Sheeran, Ed Sheeran's first place to come. And if someone knows him, they can ask the question. First place in form, he came to the lounge with his luggage and his guitar from the airport. And he came for weeks. And through us, he was introduced to another poetry spot called Fly Poet. John Hensley, who runs Fly Poet, introduced him to Jamie Foxx's people. He lived with Jamie Foxx and lived on his couch for a couple months until Jamie Foxx got him his record deal. So his start started in poetry scene here. And that's what I mean. Like, the stories of people aren't just hip-hop stories, aren't just poetry stories, aren't just hip-hop, aren't just whatever. It's people from all over. But what I love about it, at, well, first of all, I love hearing the passion in your voice about any time where, you know, somebody creatively, you know, bloomed as even just a small part of being, you know, in your space. But also, I love that, I love this message, like the broadening message of what poetry really is today, because I don't think... I don't think that that kids today necessarily think of poet poets having that trajectory and and sort of being able to hover in so many creative realms. And because that's really exciting so, and important for exciting. kids to know. It's super exciting, but I think the biggest the thing with that is that most people well, if you look at it, poetry and writers in general, it's a very anonymous art form. It's a very anonymous art form. Because look, I love um, I love Fight Club. I think Fight Club's a great film, right? I can't tell you what the guy who wrote that looks like. Yeah. If they put a gun in my head and said, tell us who that is, I don't know who that is. Um, uh, most writers, unless you're a lover of writing, of reading, and you pay attention to the little picture on the back flap, most authors, people couldn't tell you what they look like. J.K. Rowling's like a, an exception. Because that was a became a phenomenon. But when she wasn't a phenomenon, she had those books, no one knew what the hell when she was doing the short stories, no one knew what she looked like. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a very anonymous thing. Most songs, most songwriters, people couldn't tell you what they look like. People couldn't tell you what the per person who wrote something like Transformers looked like. A huge movie that millions of people have seen. Couldn't tell you what they look like. Couldn't tell you what the people who wrote uh, Toy Story. Uh, for Pixar, wrote Star Wars. Couldn't tell you what they look like. And not the original, not when it was George Lucas. Cause I was like, I feel like people know what that guy looks like. But I could, I, <laughs> I'm trying to be on the train with you, but I feel like I have to stop you there. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. At, 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 with George Lucas, yes. Yeah, I'm teasing but, um, you. know what I mean? But like yeah. the new ones, couldn't tell you what the person who wrote Rogue One looks like. Or Force Awakens. I know J.J. Abrams was involved, but he didn't write the entire thing. So I don't know what the other writers look like. You know what I mean? Like writing is a very anonymous thing. So the idea that it can go somewhere 
people don't connect those two things because we're not given the opportunity to see the face of the writer. You know, even that there was a film, Anonymous, years ago, which was like about Shakespeare. Same thing with Shakespeare. Outside of the pictures, especially then, there was no internet and no way to send pictures to people and blah, blah, blah. It was just, there's a, someone wrote this. That's it. That's all you have is word of mouth. Oh, this. This is a good book. This is a good play. You should check this out. Can't tell you what to do. He could be sitting. He could be in the show and people would know. But arguably, many art forms were like that back in the day. Yeah, but I think the the, the I, of trajectory, when we're talking in terms of that, like, I know who Johnny Depp is, like, acting, and the musicians who sing the songs all get the praise mm-hmm. in a different way than the writers do, you know? You get to see them do that. You get to see them go from nothing to something. With writers, there's just some really good writers yeah. that have done amazing things, you know? Uh, uh, um she used to write every dang song for a year. It was Diane Warren. Mm-hmm. Like, unless you were a big fan of Diane Warren, most people couldn't tell you what she looked like. One of the biggest hits ever. You know what I mean? Like, she wrote so much. Yeah. You know, Sia, I think, plays into that now. You know, like, covering her face and playing that. But that's a very anonymous thing. You know? I mean... Well, there's two things. One is that we need to just, we need to feature writers more. But two is that I would argue that not every writer wants to be public, like out in the public. Uh, There is that also. But I also think it's more the other way around. I think it's more that people, writers aren't given that, those opportunities. And especially with a poet. So what's, what's the mark that you'd like to leave then? What's the mark that you'd like to leave for writers and for poets? Oh, that we can, we don't have to necessarily, uh, like for me, as long as we're telling genuine stories, honest stories, truth, and being passionate about what it is, it doesn't matter if people get to see us on the billboards and the da-da-da-da-da-da. We still do what we do. Um, but I just want to leave a... a like the legacy behind of that, of being very honest and passionate about what it is and showing the connection between people. I think that's what writers and me as a poet have the ability to do in a different way than most others. Well, Sheehan, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. For more information on Sheehan, the Poetry Lounge, and to see his crazy light spot for Adidas, go to his show notes page at vickiehowell.com slash craftish. Craftish is a Camp Bell production. It's produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. Thank you so much for listening to the Craftish Podcast. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend or maybe take some time to rate and review us on iTunes. Your words really do matter for this podcast. On next week's episode of Craftish, my guest will be Kat Coyle, the designer behind the now infamous pink knit hat that has become the symbol of last month's Women's March. That show will go live next Thursday. Until then, breathe in, craft out.